And today we are looking at verse 4, and I'll go and read that in my version because my uh, word study is based on that. Um, And I'm reading out of the NASB for those who care. Verse 4 is, In whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, he swears to his own hurt and does not change. So real quick, what is integrity? I know we've been recapping that every week, but I feel like we need to keep keep talking about that. What exactly is integrity? Um, and I wanted to look at first what is not integrity, and that's hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is the opposite of integrity. Uh, originally, a hypocrite was an actor who on stage put on a mask and assumed the identity of someone else. So hypocrisy is when you act a certain way... Um, I'm sorry, let me read that again. Hypocrisy is when you act a certain way and are some other way. That makes sense. Like an actor who puts on a mask. In reality, his name is Bob, but on the stage, he's acting like someone else. For instance, uh, let's say you have a friend named John. I hope we don't have any Johns in here. Who claims to do fair and good business, but actually cheats his clients out of money. Uh, That is a hypocrite. Conversely, and I thought this was interesting, thinking it through, if your same friend John claims to do terrible and unfair business, but actually does fair business, then he is also a hypocrite. So that's also important. We can't be too hard on ourselves. Sometimes humility uh, goes a little too far, and you can actually be a hypocrite. So I read uh, an interesting explanation of integrity with reference to the Pharisees. And we've all heard uh, the expression that integrity is doing what's right when no one else is around, or doing the same thing uh, privately as you do publicly, and vice versa. Uh, This particular author, same idea, just a little more defined. He writes about the Pharisees, Ethics refers to a standard of right and wrong, good and evil. It's what the Pharisees said they believed was right. Morality is a lived standard of right and wrong, good and evil. It's what the Pharisees actually did. So ethics is the standard they claim to be. Morality is what they actually did. Thus, integrity means sound, complete, and integrated to the extent that a person's ethics and morality are integrated, that is, what they say they do and what they actually do, that person has integrity. To the extent that the person's ethics and moralities are not integrated, that person lacks integrity. So, your same friend John claims to have an honest and fair business and actually has Uh, a business that is conducted honestly and fairly. He's integrating his ethics and morality. Thus, he has integrity. But if he conducts himself with lies and cheating when he claims to have a fair business, um, his business lacks integrity. It is his ethics and morality are not integrated. So integrity is our subject. Psalm 15.4 is our verse. And I will read it one more time. In whose eyes a reprobate is despised but who honors those who fear the Lord, he swears to his own hurt and does not change. Uh, we are going to look at two characters from the Bible, and we're actually going to have a positive and a negative today. Uh, but just I, for a second, I wanted to go through some of these words, because some of them aren't everyday words. Like reprobate, exactly as a reprobate. Dictionary.com defines it as a deprived, unprincipled, or wicked person. For instance, a drunken reprobate. In the Hebrew, this term could also mean one who is despised, vile, worthless, despicable, or contemptible. The basic meaning is to accord little worth to something. In this context, 
it seems that the psalmist is referring to someone who is despised or rejected by either God or godly men on the basis of inappropriate actions or attitudes. It's a little, little bit much, but it's important that this is someone referring to somebody who is already rejected by God for something that is inappropriate, for sin in their life, for some specific reason. Now, this is a little bit difficult because um, it's saying the man or woman of integrity is supposed to despise a person who is already in the position of being despised or rejected by God. Um, this is a little bit of a touchy subject because how is it that a godly person could despise someone that seems a little bit contrary to several other Christian principles that we find in the New Testament especially? And how is it that someone becomes a reprobate? We don't really get a whole lot of information here. Does this refer to somebody who's simply living in sin? Someone who hasn't accepted Christ as their Savior? Uh, someone who's blasphemed the Holy Spirit? We're not given the information here, so it's important that we don't jump to conclusions. Um, I don't fully understand all of this, so I'm just going to give a few principles that I feel like we can draw out of verses that tend to be a little more volatile like this. Uh, firstly, um, we do need to be cautious because verses like this can be very dangerous when we spend too much time trying to classify people as reprobate or not reprobate. Are you rejected by God or not rejected by God? It's not our place, it's incredibly important, not our place <clears throat> to judge others, and we are incapable of judging others' hearts. That's God's place. God's place is to be the one who condemns uh, and judges others. The principle that we find in the New Testament is not that of hating sinners. It's important. We don't hate sinners. Um, Christ equates hate with murder. Uh, rather, we find the principle of hating and despising sin, not the sinner. My recommendation is that when looking at verses like this, uh, that can be a little bit volatile, uh, we draw out the principle without falling into the trap of anointing ourselves condemners of sin. Another principle we can draw out of this um, is how to act toward those people as opposed to how to feel. Uh, Charles Spurgeon writes, So then a godly man hateth no man, nor condemneth any, but yet notwithstanding he disliketh sin in sinful men, and that he sticketh not to let them perceive either by reproving them or shunning their company, or by doing of some other thing, whereby they may know they are misliked of good men for their enormities, and see themselves to be condemned of others for their wicked and godly life. A good man, therefore, must not flatter the ungodly in their ungracious attempts, but must freely declare that he disalloweth their course in, converse, in, <clears throat> in conversation. Um, it's a little wordy, but in other words, excuse me, we must be careful not to either approve of sins or be perceived to be approving of sins. That's the difficult one. Uh, the con this concept is, is a constant difficulty in the Christian walk. How can I love someone, get close to someone, um, that personal evangelism, how can I be close to them without either A, uh, condemning them and making them feel alienated um, and judging them, or B, be perceived as agreeing with their sinful acts? I don't really have a great answer for this, to be honest. Um, my rule is, to, is honesty as much as possible. Um, and this is my usual theory. And this is from me, not from the Bible. So feel free to call me a heretic later. Um, but this is usually how I converse with people like this. 
Um, if someone does not claim the Bible as their truth in their life, I am not going to force them to follow that guide for their life, even though it's truth. If they don't claim it, I'm not going to try to force them into it because that's going to push them away and alienate them. But I don't lie to them. If they're doing something wrong, if they're offending me, if they're sinning, I'm going to tell them the truth about what they're doing. I'm going to tell them that what I believe is that what they're doing is wrong and that what I believe is from the Bible and the Bible is cosmologically true. Um, but I'm careful not to condemn them or judge them or be God for them because I'm not God. God judges, God condemns. So it's a very delicate issue. But if you go up to a, an unbeliever who's sinning and condemn them for it, then they're going to say, you Christians, all you do is say that you're sinless. And I've experienced that so many times with people who think that Christians, we all think we're sinless. But that's not true. We actually know we're sinners. We just know we're saved. So it's a very delicate subject, and I just would ask everyone to be very careful when they come to it. Um, it is a very difficult position to be in when you're around unbelievers and they're doing things that are wrong and you're trying to take care of that. Um, one last caution is how you say it. Uh, John Glock once told me, you can say anything to anyone without them being offended and them understanding. It's all about in how you say it. Tone of voice, body language, the words you choose. And I'll leave that subject with that, but um, to be very delicate is my only suggestion. Fearing the Lord. We just talked about reprobate and what that meant. Fearing the Lord. Fearing the Lord is one of those expressions that seem to get thrown around a lot, especially in the Bible, um, without a whole lot of explanation. Uh, it's a common expression in the Old Testament used to ex express respect or fear, reverence, honor. Someone who fears the Lord is someone who respects God's authority, person, and power and fully understands those things. Um, have you ever stood out in a field during a lightning storm? Lightning's careening across the sky gorgeous, it's beautiful, it's lighting up the sky and everything around you. And you think for a moment how powerful that lightning bolt is. One strike and a few feet of you and you're just fried. That kind of experience is kind of a taste of truly fearing the Lord. Beautiful, awesome, praise, awesome God. So powerful. It's kind of like uh, growing up my father is another good example. I love my dad. He's a great guy, has a lot of wisdom, but I fear him <laughs> in a respectful sort of way. We move on. Um, a quick word on swearing and making oaths, since we're going to be spending some time talking about that. Um, I got a great quote from Shakespeare that I didn't understand until I read an essay about it. It's from The Merchant of Venice, and it's about a man of trustworthiness. The quote is, his words are bonds, his oaths are oracles. His love sincere, his thoughts immaculate, his tears pure messengers sent from his heart. His heart as far from fraud as heaven from earth. His oaths are oracles. That means that when he says he's going to do something, it's like he's telling the future because it's, that's how much it's going to happen. Um, on this point, I'd just like to read a quick quote that I found, um, an essay online written by like a high schooler. I just thought this was amazing. The oath of a man is to be the proof of his integrity. He would rather lose his life than betray his word. 
The Merchant of Venice has numerous bonds and oaths. This play uh, is filled with them. The characters throughout his play, this play, put money, friendship, their religion, and their and true love on the line because of oaths they make. Oaths are a serious matter. Uh, Jesus m- several times criticizes the Pharisees for the misuse of oaths. Um, in fact, Jesus says that it's better that your yeses just mean yes, and your noes just mean no, so that you don't need to make oaths for everything. Because they're a very dangerous thing, and your word ought to be trustworthy enough. My word just saying, I will come to your house and help you clean out your garage. That should be enough. I shouldn't have to make an oath that I will come over. In this verse, a man or woman of integrity is said to be someone who follows through with their oaths, even to their own hurt, and that's key. This means that if you make an oath or a promise, you fulfill it no matter what it costs you. That's not an easy goal to meet. Um, If you've ever met anybody like this, someone who will fulfill their word 100% every time no matter what, that person, you know they stand out as someone who's trustworthy, someone with integrity. I think, I truly believe if all of us were people who set aside our own prerogatives for the sake of honesty and trustworthiness and fulfilling our word, that the kingdom of heaven would have far more citizens. That people would see us as just glowing with the glory of God because of honesty, and trustworthiness, loyalty. So with that, I'd like to introduce our character studies. <clears throat> First, we're going to look at Ruth as a positive example, and then we're going to look at Saul as our negative example. Ruth. Ruth is a great character in the Bible, very interesting. She's different from all others. Um, she's not a Jewish woman by birth, and this is kind of important because she's actually a Moabite. Now, Moab was one of those nations that was never really on good terms with Israel. Uh, if you remember the story of Balaam and his talking donkey, um, the is actually the son of the king of Moab made a treaty with another group, I think it was the Midianites, um, and then tried to get Balaam to curse Israel so that they could attack Israel. So, right from the start, Moab and Israel just don't seem to get along. They're kind of an off and on, always at war sort of situation. So the fact that there's a book of the Bible called Ruth, named after a Moabite woman, um, and that she's just an incredible example of integrity in the Bible, that's kind of a big deal. Uh, The other thing that's kind of interesting is she's the great-grandmother of David. That also makes her the great-great-great-great-great-great times 46 grandmother of Jesus, which is also interesting. So, trying to get the point across, it's clear that this is a woman who was blessed by God and whose actions were a blessing to a lot of other people. So we need to take a lot of time and and focus on what did she do, what are her actions. Um, Ruth left her nation and people to live with her mother-in-law, Naomi, who was a Jewish woman, after her father-in-law and her own husband died. So she married Naomi's son, and then Naomi's son dies, and Naomi's husband dies. Now, at this point, it would have been normal for her to go back to her own parents. She goes back to her own parents, she lives with them, they take care of her, and then maybe she gets married off to someone else. Because she's young, she can still have kids, she's probably beautiful, But instead, she actually chooses to go with Naomi back to the land of the Israelites where she doesn't know anybody. She's never been there. She doesn't know the land. These aren't her people. Uh, There she finds Boaz, who is a uh, a distant relative of Naomi, and eventually she marries Boaz, and we'll get into that. And they give birth to Obed, who's the father of Jesse, who is the father of David, like we said. Um, 
So just a few examples of her integrated actions. Um, Once again, our verse reads, In whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. Ruth 2, 11 through 12 reads, And Boaz replied to her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully reported to me, and how you left your father and your mother in the land of your birth. And came to a people that you did not know, that you did not previously know. May the Lord reward your work and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. Um, Ruth did not just choose Israel as a nation, but she chose the God of Israel as her God. <clears throat> she realized that there were that this is a people who feared God, that their God was powerful. And she chose to honor and go with Naomi, who is of the people who fear God, as opposed to going back to her own people, the Moabites, who worship several gods, one of which actually required human sacrifice. So instead of acting in the normal fashion and going back to her own people, she yearned for a chosen people of God and sought to become part of their group instead. Uh, This concept has many little nuggets of wisdom for us. Um, when we're faced with the choices, who am I going to spend my time with at work, at school? What's the group of people that I want to be part of? And for some reason, it always seems like the cool group, the group that's having all the fun, is also the group that you probably shouldn't be spending time with. And I don't know why it is that we always want to be with that group. They just seem like so cool. But the, the reality is that we know it's better for us to stay away from that group. When Ruth was given the choice... She left her own family and friends to be with a group that she would know would be a better influence over her life and that she would be blessed by more. That's important. Who will influence your life? Another example, Ruth 3, 10 through 11. Then he said, again, this is Boaz speaking, May you be blessed of the Lord, my daughter. You have shown your last kindness to be better than the first by not going after, uh, by not going after young men, whether poor or rich. Now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you whatever you ask. For all my people in the city know that you are a woman of excellence. And like I said, Ruth could have stayed in Moab, found a young wealthy guy to marry. She probably could have had her pick in Israel. It sounds like she was an excellent woman. Probably one of those ladies that would make a great wife and anyone would love to have as a wife. But instead of looking for the young and rich, she goes after someone with character. She chooses someone who has the same quality of integrity that she has. She chooses to spend her time with that person rather than someone who's going to make her life a little more comfortable. Now, the second part of verse 4 reads once again, that's fifth, Psalm 15, 4, he, he swears to his own hurt and does not change. Uh, Ruth made an, an oath to Naomi earlier in the, in the book. Um, now, at this point, Naomi's actually trying to convince Ruth, go back to your parents, go back to Moab, to your own people. And Ruth says this, Do not urge me to leave you or turn, or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me and worse if anything but death parts you and I, or you and me. Uh, Ruth knows, again, that Naomi is a woman who fears the Lord. So she's, She's choosing her, choosing to go with her, but then she makes this oath, this pact with her, saying, I'm going to stick around with you, 
I'm going to spend my time with you, and I'm not going to leave you, and I'm making an oath that I'm not. And this is just an incredible oath because you know these ladies didn't get along all the time. Um, and once she marries Boaz, which is also interesting, the fact that she did marry into Naomi's family pretty much guarantees that they're always going to be together. Um, probably Naomi lived with her. And you know there's going to be some of those days where Ruth's going to say, just get out of here, you old hag. You always got to have things your way. This is my house. That's my assumption. It's not in the book. But, <laughs> but my assumption is that they lived together till Naomi died. Again, it's not drawn out in the book, but that's my assumption based on Ruth's character. I can assume that that's actually what happened. She would have held her oath even if it hurt her to do so. One last thing on Ruth and Boaz. Um, they showed integrity together. How they were married, how they chose to seek each other out. There was, now customarily speaking, the closest relative in Naomi's family would be the one who has the option to marry Ruth. Now, there was actually another man who was closer to Naomi, thus Ruth, than Boaz was. So technically speaking, Boaz shouldn't be marrying Ruth because this other guy has claim. So instead of going behind someone's back or lying or running away together or several other things they could have done, Boaz actually goes to this other guy and talks it out with him. And the guy accepts and says, yeah, sure, I'll give up my, my right and you can have at it. It's incredible that they, they together had that integrity to be married in such a way that others around them would look at it and say they have integrity, they're upholding honesty. This is important because their integrity, their honesty, the way that they are doing what is right becomes a blessing for the entire nation of Israel and eventually all of us. Because like I said, their line is David and eventually Jesus. So one act, one strong act of integrity leads to incredible blessings for the entire world eventually. Moving on. I just thought it was interesting that basically all of our examples for the last two weeks have been in some way connected to David. We talked about Hannah last week, who was the mother of Samuel, who was the prophet who God told that David would be king. Then Benji talked about David and Jonathan. And now we're talking about the great-grandmother, great-grandmother, great-great-grandmother of David. And now we're going to talk about Saul, the king who tried to kill David. Saul is another interesting character. He has his ups and downs. Sometimes you're rooting for him and sometimes you just shake your head at him. Um, it seems that, especially towards the end of his life, he has more downs than he has ups. Um, he was the first king of Israel, partly chosen because he was tall. Um, so I might be king in here. Um, <laughs> now, when David and Saul first meet each other, uh, it's because Saul wants someone to soothe an evil spirit that Saul has upon him. He's upset. He's, I don't fully understand what's going on, but David plays beautifully a lyre or some such instrument and evidently sings beautifully and it soothes Saul and Saul delights in this young man. Problems start to come when people start praising David for his victories, um, starting with the slaying of Goliath. Now Saul, again, does not honor David, thus not following our verse, but who honors those who fear the Lord. Uh, there's no mistake that David is a man who fears God, reveres God. Take, for example, his, his reaction to Goliath. This is one of my favorite, favorite stories in the Bible. 
We've got a giant. He's probably about 9 to 10 feet tall. He's got a 65-pound spear. And he's challenging any of the Israelites to come out and fight him. Enter David, little, probably around 16 years old. He's too young to be in the military, we know. Um, doesn't have any armor, doesn't have any weapons. He's got a sling. Um, and he walks up, and all the, the entire army of Israel is standing in front of Goliath, and Goliath is mocking him and all that. And David just walks up and says, What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? So, when everyone else has a little bit of sense and says, I'm not going to fight this guy, David's like, Psh, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he would taunt the armies of the Lord? Then he finally goes before Saul, and he says this, Your servant has killed both lion and bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, since he has taunted the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. David knows that this Philistine has taunted the Lord. So he knows God's going to give him victory. There's no problem. He understands God's power and he fears it and respects it. He has a fierce honor and fear of God. And this is a quality that Saul should have honored. This is an example of a man who follows Psalm 15. In fact, he wrote Psalm 15. Instead, Saul gets jealous of David's victories, and I think he is jealous of David's closest with God. Now, this got me thinking, uh, have I ever been jealous of someone else's blessings? I would really love it if I could say no to that. Um, but the reality is that we, we get jealous of other people, even gifts from God. I have actually been jealous of other preachers, and not in a good way. Um, someone who's preaching the word beautifully, and it's almost a bitter feeling. I wish I could preach like that. And instead of seeking to be like that person in a godly way and seeking someone like that to be a mentor for me, we can be, we can be bitter about it. We can be jealous. Other examples, uh, jealous of gifts that others um, have been given by God, jealous of others' looks, jealous of others' talents, jealous of others' friends. There's lots of things that we can be jealous of. When we see these qualities in others, and we know we want those qualities, we can choose to act with holiness, though. We can choose to surround ourselves with people that we know we want to be like and choose to be you know, grown with them, honor these people, instead of being jealous. Now, in Saul's case, he prefers the company of the reprobate. 1 Samuel 28, 7-8. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there is a woman who is a medium in Endor. Then Saul disguised himself by putting on other clothes, and went he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night, and he said, Conjure up for me, please, and bring up for me whom I shall name to you. Saul's been asking God for guidance in a battle. God's not answering him. Um, at this point... Saul's pretty much been rejected by God. Um, he's been blaspheming left and right and sinning and making stupid oaths, um, trying to kill David. So instead of seeking God's will, he goes to a witch, basically. He goes to someone to conjure up a dead spirit, which is a whole other story. 
But he knows perfectly well that this is evil. Um, that conjuring and speaking to spirits is forbidden by God's law. But he seeks it out anyway. Uh, he has to have control of the situation. He can't stand to not be in just... He can't stand to do God's will in this, in this case. Instead, he commits a blasphemous act so that he has the knowledge that he wants. A few quick applications here. First, don't mess with evil. It's serious stuff. Satan would love to have the chance to get a nice strong foothold in your life through mysticism or fortune-telling or conjuring, just like he did with Saul. Secondly, are you a control freak? Am I a control freak? Um, What's important in your life? Following God's will, even if you don't know what it is, um, and even if it seems spontaneous to you, or having full control over every aspect of your life. Thirdly, when we need wisdom, we go to people with godly wisdom. We go to people with the Holy Spirit. When you need wisdom, the last person in the world you should go to is someone who doesn't have the Holy Spirit in their life. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. Last week, Benji was talking about Jonathan and how he was loyal to David. So loyal that when his father wanted to kill David, um, he went to his father Saul and convinced him not to go after David. And Saul swears, or oaths, this. As the Lord lives, that is an oath, note, I'll read the whole verse. Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan and Saul vowed, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. Great, great. Saul's come to his senses, he's listened to reason, he's made an oath before God. End of story. Three verses later, he tries to kill him again. We don't usually have situations quite this dire when we're making oaths or promises. But we need to remember that um, to be trustworthy is to be trustworthy indefinitely. Uh, Saul had a very short amount of time. We don't really know. It says that there were some battles and then he tried to kill David again. No amount of time takes away a promise or an oath or your word. No amount of time alleviates that from you. Now we've seen how Saul can't seem to keep an oath to stop <laughs> trying to kill a godly man. He can't seem to keep that oath. But here's an example of an oath that he tries really hard to keep. 1 Samuel 14. Now the men of Israel were hard-pressed on that day, for Saul had put the people under oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food before evening, and until I have avenged myself on my enemies. So none of the people tasted food. Now Jonathan, Saul's son, um, is walking through the forest. They're, they're actually going after the Philistines. And Jonathan happens upon some honey. He didn't actually hear his father's oath, so he had no idea. So of course he tastes the honey, and he's strengthened for it. And evidently he kicks a lot of Philistine butt that day. He's the man that day. He rules the battle. But when Saul hears that his son broke the oath not to taste food, Saul says this, Tell me what you have done. So Jonathan told him and said, I indeed tasted a little honey with the end of my staff that was in my hand. Here I am, I must die. Saul said, May God do this to me and more also, for you shall surely die, Jonathan. But the people said to Saul, Must Jonathan die who has brought about this great deliverance in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, not one hair of his head shall fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people rescued Jonathan, and he did not die. So Saul seems to have a problem with breaking an oath that he makes to his son in private to not kill a godly man. But he makes an oath in public that no one should eat 
and his son breaks the oath, and of course he's trying to fulfill that oath. So my first thought is, could it be that Saul, Saul lacks some integrity with public and private actions? A few applications. Firstly, once again, be cautious when taking oaths. They are not something to be thrown around lightly. There is a danger in taking oaths. We must be careful not to take foolish oaths and prideful oaths. There is consequences when they're broken. Secondly, we arrive again at the point of integrity. Saul's pride forces him to keep an oath that he took before many people because he doesn't want to lose faith. Face. Sorry, he does not want to lose face. But he breaks a godly oath that he makes in private. We have to be people who live with integrity. What you would do in private ought to be the same thing that you would do in public. What you say you're going to do is what you do. And all of these things must be seasoned with godliness. One last mention of Saul. We said before that Ruth and Boaz acted with integrity and honesty and that all of Israel and all of us eventually were blessed by their actions. Saul acted on the opposite. There were these people who lived near Israel known as the Gibeonites. Uh, They're the remnant of the people known as the Amorites, who should sound vaguely familiar. In Joshua 10, um, when Israel was coming in to invade the land and they were killing off all the people, um, the Amorites were the ones who tricked them into an oath. So there is a covenant made with Israel and the Amorites that they would not fight and that the Israelites would not harm the Amorites. 2 Samuel 21.1 reads, Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year, and David sought the presence of the Lord. And the Lord said, It is for Saul and his bloody house, because he put the Gibeonites to death. When Saul was still reigning... He knew there was a covenant with the Amorites, so what did he do? He slaughtered them, of course. So Saul breaks an oath that the nation of Israel had with the nation of the Amorites, and the entire nation of Israel was cursed because of it. For three years, they had famine. So just quickly, we need to seek to be a blessing to others and not a curse. It's easy to take for granted that our actions have long-lasting, strong consequences for the entire family of God. When one suffers, we all suffer. Um, I may think that my actions only deal with me, but it's not just me. It's me, it's my family, it's this family. Um, When I am dishonest, when I'm lying, when I'm cheating, uh, the trust cannot be here. When there's no trust in this family, this family doesn't work, and we don't grow. So in conclusion, uh, this morning we looked at honoring those who are godly, being cautious not to approve of sin, We also looked at keeping O's, even when they are to our own detriment. Um, Remember, this is a principle that extends to what we say, not just an outright oath. This principle extends to our yeses and our noes. Our word ought to be our bond. When we say we're going to do something, that is what we ought to do. That means when we say that we're going to meet you at 5 o'clock, you meet that person at 5 o'clock or earlier. When we say that we're going to come help someone clean out their garage, and we're there on time, and we're there working hard. When we say that we will get those reports into our boss on time, we get them there early. When we say we will help with Sunday school, with nursery, with bringing refreshments, with cleaning up, we follow through and we do those things. These are qualities of a godly man or woman of integrity. In this way, we can be a blessing to this entire body. We will grow together in God. 
We will have, be a great witness to the world because they'll look in and they'll say, wow, these people are trustworthy. These people love each other. These people are loyal. Let's pray. Lord, Father, God in heaven, uh, we just thank you so much for your word. Thank you for um, God, the examples. Lord, I pray that we might have integrity, that we might um, let our words be our bonds, that we might fulfill all things that we say that we will do, Lord, and even more. Uh, I just pray that you would humble us and help us to see um, our own faults and not judge others, Lord, and uh, that we would just be good examples for one another. I pray all this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.